With more ways than ever to connect to their favorite artists, bands, shows, and movies, fans today are bound to feel close connections to both their favorite celebrities and other followers. But with that level of connection comes caveats. I'm your host, Maggie Pena. And I'm your co-host, Sean Scott. On today's episode of Pop Culture Convos, we're talking fandoms. Again, I'm Sean. And I'm Maggie. And we have with us today our staff writer, Reese Hollowell. Hi, great to be here. So thank you, Reese, first of all, for coming, and also Maggie for always being here. I guess a pretty good way to start off this conversation would be just when do you guys first remember interacting with fandoms? I guess for me, uh, the first time was probably around 2012 when the first Avengers movie came out. I had not really been that exposed to like comic book movies or superheroes at that point but I remember I vividly remember going to the theater to see that movie and just being blown away like this is so much going on at once and then I went back and, re- and watched all the previous Marvel movies and that kind of started my obsession for a long time with superheroes and comic book stuff and it got me to talk to a lot of people who I knew at, at school and and engage in some online net discussions as well around that topic. So that was kind of the first time that I really started getting into that kind of stuff. I am a product of the 2010s. And so I was obviously into Hunger Games and had all of the books, watched all the movies, had posters. You know, I had all the merch for the for the for that fandom. And I'm also just kind of a sucker for short-term fandoms almost like Riverdale when that came out I was super into it season one I will not I will not go further than that but I was super into season one so I got Riverdale socks and Riverdale shirts and stuff like that that's kind of my relationship with fandoms is short stints with it with things that usually are fads and go out of style and I end up buying things I agree kind of with Reese I think my first interaction was probably Marvel although I will say before that I was pretty into the Harry Potter books and movies I don't know what level of engagement counts as fandom itself because I watched the movies and I read the books, but any interaction beyond that was my mom really liked it and my brother really liked it. So it was something that was on a lot, but that I didn't necessarily always choose to interact with. But that's when I became aware that there were groups of people who devoted so much time to the content that they liked to the level that we see kind of today. Yeah, I was also into Harry Potter, which kind of goes to your point, like, it was kind of a product of having siblings who are millennials and who grew up right in the time that Harry Potter came out. So, you know, my sister had friends with Harry Potter tattoos and, you know, their usernames on some things are like Harry Potter related things. I really liked it. And I still love the Harry Potter movies and books. They're close to my heart, but definitely not in the same way I used to as like a preteen. I'm the same way. My my mom is the one who got me into it and who started letting me read the books one at a time. And then after a certain point, when I was catching up to where the newer books were and they were getting darker, I think I was like 2008 or nine. And she was like, you got to slow down because this stuff's getting really mature. And so she wouldn't let me read the seventh book until I turned 10. At the same time, watching the movies and going to see the last movie in theaters. And that was kind of it. I, like, I've still, like, I saw the last two of the Fantastic Beast movies, but beyond those, I have not really gone back to Harry Potter much since getting exposed to it as a kid. Harry Potter is a really interesting example of fandom because, it, first of all, it's made up of a really specific demographic of mostly millennials, from my perspective at least. 
and it kind of came up at a time when the internet was still not in its infancy obviously because in 2010 the internet was not brand new at that point but we didn't have TikTok or YouTube to the level that it is today and so it was operating a lot in the Tumblr space and now you have Harry Potter World or Pottermore was a website for a while so there's a lot of real world engagement with that that I don't think many of the newer fandoms have made the jump to real world content yet. I think you can also point to Harry Potter as being one of the first kind of, I don't want to say victims, there's been a lot of discussion about its relation to social media with how J.K. Rowling has sort of gone to Twitter and to various interviews and platforms to change things or introduce new canon that was not present in the original material, which I guess kind of introduces the question of, okay, is a fandom required to accept these new additions because the creator says so? But also, if the creator themselves is still alive and still interacting with it without necessarily producing something new, is that a positive thing for a fan base who has such a close connection to the original source material? And I think Harry Potter is a really great example of kind of that point you're bringing up of fandoms own the content that they are fans of. I think especially with J.K. Rowling, we've seen that people aren't going to let her change the canon in the way that she wants to do that. She can keep writing books. She can keep, you know, changing stuff. But people want what's in the books that they imagined when they were kids, especially with this one, because a lot of people say, you know, it brought them out of mental health issues or it they grew up with it. So with things this close to people's hearts, it's theirs. It's no longer the author's content. J.K. Rowling is interesting in that way because I feel like other fandoms don't necessarily operate that way. I think of the BTS fandom or Nicki Minaj's fandom. So more person-specific fandoms. All that they want is more content from the people that they are fans of. And social media has put that to a degree where it's not just, oh, I want a new song from this artist, or I want a new song from this band, or I'm excited to go to a concert in a few months. It's, I'm excited to see them post a picture on a Tuesday, or to like a tweet, or if their liked videos on TikTok are public. That was a big thing with Taylor Swift when she joined TikTok. Her liked videos were public and everyone wanted to have their post be liked by her. So with that, it almost gets into parasocial relationships when it goes beyond content-specific fandoms into person-specific fandoms. Weird distinction there. That's also the natural evolution of celebrity culture. This is not a new phenomenon back in the day before the internet, you still had tabloids, you still had celebrity gossip columns in newspapers and in magazines that would theorize about which couple's breaking up, who's cheating on who, what's going on within these very isolated celebrity worlds. But now, because fans have direct access to the people that they are fans of and who they care about, they can essentially become the press in a way and they don't have to rely on other reporting. They can just go to someone's Twitter, go to someone's TikTok, and dig that stuff up for themselves, and also even potentially get engagement back from the person. And I think, like you said, I think that really does delve into parasocial levels, where you have people who feel like they are creating a human connection with someone they've never met just off of brief interactions on social media. How do you think this maybe connects to the fall of celebrities? We were talking before this about 
stands of Nicki Minaj or even with J.K. Rowling? If we're so close to these people in a way that we haven't been before, how do you think that contributes to maybe celebrities falling out of their fame? I'm going to tie it back to Zoe Kravitz, not because she has a huge fandom or anything, but because with the Batman, so that was the DC fandom, she got a lot of support for her role as Catwoman. But then as soon as she spoke out against Will Smith at the Oscars, people were digging up things that she said eight or ten years in the past because there's a record of everything that she's ever said in public. So people could dig up comments that she made about Jaden Smith when he was 14 that are obviously disgusting and obviously shouldn't be said. And the fact that it's permanent makes it so much easier for celebrities who have built up these giant fan bases to just lose it in a day or to have people suddenly turn on them immediately without any chance to really justify what they're doing or what they said. There's, it's just an immediate switch. And I think, obviously, there's a conversation about that. That kind of leads into the idea of cancel culture. But I think the, the thing that always bugs me about when people throw the term cancel culture around is a lot of times the people who are getting canceled aren't actually losing any of their celebrity. People like Louis C.K., James Gunn is a good example of someone who, like Zoe Kravitz, old tweets were dug up that were not necessarily very flattering. He was fired from Guardians of the Galaxy 3, then a couple months later was just rehired. And obviously there, people can have their opinions on whether or not they think he should have been fired in the first place or rehired, but the fact is he went through that process of people digging up old stuff, it becoming public, him losing a job, and then within a couple months getting it back. And when people, again, use the term cancel culture, it's hard for me to really wrap my head around because I don't see it being real cancellation or there being a culture of it because that would imply that there are long-lasting repercussions when, again, there are people who have been accused of much worse than making a bad tweet who are still active in their respective industries and still have massive fan bases. It kind of goes to this broader issue of there's so many things to be a fan of that I feel like people are desensitized to when their favorite creators do something that's, like you said, not flattering. If everyone gets canceled, there's nothing to be a fan of anymore. I wouldn't say that I'm in the Lana Del Rey fandom, but I'm a fan of Lana Del Rey's music. And she has had such a bad two years, but there hasn't been any consequence from that because the people who like her music are still going to listen to her music because someone getting canceled is just another Wednesday. And there's nothing lasting, like Reese, you said, there's nothing lasting about cancellation anymore. And especially if you are a deep fan of it, you're going to do anything in your power to defend their actions. I wonder, not to get into BTS, but... Do you guys think that BTS could ever successfully be canceled or what would that take? Because I think that's kind of the quintessential example of a very strong fandom culture today. This is going to sound a little presumptuous. I think BTS reminds me a lot of the way Michael Jackson was, where people saw Michael Jackson as this huge figure who was too big to fail. He was the biggest thing ever. He had huge hits, he had um, huge albums, he won all kinds of awards, he was seen as like the quintessential celebrity. And then that kind of stopped being the case. And again, he went through the normal celebrity cycle of losing relevance, not releasing stuff that was becoming, that was hits anymore. But at the same time, there were other allegations that were coming out that were not necessarily flattering. And that decline of popularity mixed with those allegations kind of contributed to his public image taking a huge hit in the years leading up to his death. 
in the case of something like BTS, if that was to happen, I think it would have to be similar, where they are at a very high peak of relevancy right now. I mean, they just performed at the Grammys. They've had multiple number one hits within the past few years. I think they are at least, if not there already, approaching that too big to fail moment. But I also know, I don't know any celebrity who has had their massive popularity last their entire career. Eventually, another group, another artist is going to come in to replace them, and they're going to slowly lose relevancy. So if there are things that people want to say about them, if there are allegations, if they want to cancel them, I think the only way it would be successful is, is once that decline start begins at some point. And I say that as I, I've, I've listened to, I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself a stan or like a big fan, but I have listened to most of their most recent, like their last couple albums and their most recent singles. And I have a very close friend who is a very big BTS fan. And so I've, I've approached that group specifically more as an outsider looking in, someone who's interested in them as a cultural artifact rather than necessarily as a band. Kind of from that same perspective, because I haven't really engaged with them or their music, but I have seen them gain relevance and especially online. Like there's this one Twitter account that I follow called Chart Data and they post updates about like what's going on on Billboard or who's being streamed on Spotify. And every time BTS is mentioned, their comments flooded with BTS supremacy or like army supremacy and all this stuff because they just have the most active online presence of any fandom right now. I wonder when it crosses the line to exploitative. And Maggie, we've talked about this before. I don't know if you have thoughts on it in the fandom conversation, but Billboard had to change the rules on how they count digital sales because BTS fans would buy a digital song 10 or 11, 12 times in a row in a week. And those would all count as individual purchases. So they were spending money to get songs to chart higher. And... I wonder what level the fandom is responsible for creating that culture for. And I know you don't necessarily agree with that practice, but to me, that is the power of a fandom. If their fandom is going to do all that work, spend that money, that's their choice. And, you know, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't spend all my money on, you know, a boy band that has never met me, doesn't know I exist. So I don't think it's necessary exploitative because it's, I think when you say that you're taking away the fandom's agency, like the fans can choose to do that. And I don't think, is BTS asking them to do that? Not necessarily. I guess that I meant exploitative in the sense that a lot of their fans are adolescents and the culture that the fandom creates encourages people to act in that way. I know that not all of BTS's fans are 14, but say that you are a 14 year old and you're on if someone's like on Tumblr or Twitter or TikTok and it's telling them, hey, go buy this song. If you don't buy this song, it means that you don't love them as much as I do. And then the 14-year-old like takes their parents' money and buys the song multiple times or something. That's where I see it as becoming exploitative in that specific scenario. The funny thing I think about that is that I think fandoms have always been exploitative in that way. I kind of came in later to the party for personal reasons, but like I was the girl who went to Hot Topic and got my Riverdale stuff or got my Harry Potter stuff and I wasn't spending my money. I was doing that to fit in because I wanted to be a member of the group and if I don't have something that shows that I'm not going to be a part of the group and the biggest way to do that is through money. America 
won't get into this conversation, although I could, but, you know, America is capitalism. So if you want young people to feel welcome and to feel involved in things, they got to spend money. I agree. I have bands that I love. I have a, I have a Gorillaz shirt. I have a Taylor Swift hoodie. I have a Denzel Curry shirt. I have merch, and I have a huge collection of vinyl and Blu-ray that I have spent a lot of money on. Because when I love something, I love it really hard, and I want to be able to show that I'm a fan of that. But I think going back to what Sean was talking about, I think that in regard to how an artist expresses that publicly, there's a fine line between endorsing it and not commenting on it. So when BTS releases a new single, the conversation is, hey, announcement of the single, release of the single, promotion of the single. It's a very standard entertainment thing. What happens is the fan base, who is at this point so involved in the success of this group, wants to make sure they continue to be successful. And so most of the incentive to engage with it on that abusive level comes from within the fan base itself. And like Maggie was saying, that's, that is partially the desire to fit in, the want to be a, a part of the in-group. Where it crosses the line, in my opinion, is when you have people like Justin Bieber posting on Instagram, hey, here's how you get Yummy to number one. You gotta stream it over and over. You have to play it, play it while you sleep. Actively posting what is normally considered stan activity onto his main Instagram account and in that way promoting it to his fan base. To me, that's where it crosses the line. Is It, be, it goes from... And I mean, there's, there's negatives to inner fan base doing that as well. But again, I think when the artist themselves is doing it, it, re it really does become abusive. And it's specifically targeting their fan base in a way that I don't agree with at all. It reminds me of one of the classes that I'm taking this semester. Shout out Anthropology of Pseudoscience. I think that's its name. We've spent a lot of the class talking about cults and how that mindset works. And I am not at all saying that fandoms are cults. I realize that I'm now implying that, but I don't mean that they are cults in that level. But there's a trend in cults where the desire to fit in and the desire to not be left out pushes you to more extreme beliefs within that cult. And I think what you're talking about with the fans kind of demonstrates that where something that they might not normally do for another artist they will do for the artist that they're in the fandom of because that's the culture or they want to fit in, like you were saying, Maggie, or be part of the group and show that they are part of the group and that they hold the group's values and beliefs. And I think even moving away from music for a minute, you see that even especially in film. I was thinking the other day about this in terms of the new Doctor Strange movie that's coming out where if I go on Instagram, my page is flooded with speculations about oh which character is going to show up who's going to be the big cameos and it really makes me feel like as a fan base people are not necessarily fans of the movies because of the movies they're fans of the movies because of what they represent obviously that's not a blanket statement that's not true across the board but i think that you can look at the amount of fervor that just the idea of, of this movie being a multiverse movie and having so many possibilities for like bringing in X-Men, bringing in other outside characters. I think that kind of creates higher expectations than can ever be fulfilled. And as a result, when fan bases do that kind of speculation and do that kind of overhyping, it's unsustainable and it really does 
damage their impressions of it because if it doesn't live up to their sky high expectations, then it's then they're gonna think it's trash. I definitely want to come back to that point, but I I want to talk about a point that you mentioned, like of it. Can't remember exactly what you said, but bringing people together into a group and Sean jump in if you remember this conversation that we had about Iron Man and how Iron Man as post nine eleven culture. Yeah, as kind of creating a unity with people. Yeah, so like the reason that Marvel has been so culturally successful is because it's a cultural event that the entirety of the US is aware of and it creates this identity and it portrays this identity of nationalism and military and the way that the U.S. interacts with the world that we want to imagine that we are. And that's a point with, I think, a lot of fandoms. I mean, you could go back to Star Wars. That was people kind of rallying behind during the time of like anti-Vietnam and the whole civil rights movement. You know, people wanted something to believe in. And if TIE fighters and fighting in space was what they could believe in, then that's what they were going to believe in. Same thing with Harry Potter. Like I said, a lot of people were like, J.K. Rowling said the Dementors represented her depression, and that brought people together from a mental health perspective and, you know, Avengers with this post-9-11 world. So as much as we're kind of harping on fandoms for being bad or maybe exploitative, there is a, a reason that they are and that they exist is because it brings people together in this community that they need. And especially after COVID, I'm curious to see how fandoms will how they'll fare after COVID. For sure. And I definitely think that TikTok is going to play a large role. It's played a large role in COVID fandoms, and it's going to play a large role in the future. And there are a lot of positive aspects of fandoms, like the Wizarding World of Harry Potter is, for some people, a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience to be able to go. And that's not minimized because they're a member of a fandom or... Because, oh, do you feel like you're being exploited? That's still a once-in-a-lifetime experience for them. Caveat with that, the new Star Wars hotel, I think, is 100% exploitative because it costs, like, $5,000 and none of it works. And also, Star Wars in general, I feel like, has been a really interesting example of a struggling fandom because the most recent movie trilogy got a lot of support at first, People think that it lost a lot of support in the second one. I push back on that. I think that a lot of the fuss about that movie was fake. But then in the third one, which apparently had positive online chatter, no one financially supported it. And all of the reviews that I've seen have been very critical. Star Wars is struggling, and they did not need a too expensive hotel that no one likes to help their reputation. Yeah, Star Wars is a fascinating example because I think that it really does show the pendulum of a fan base where you have the original movie comes out, it's a huge hit, it's one of the first blockbusters, creates this huge media franchise, and then you have the prequels, which did not do that and arguably damaged the re- the brand of Star Wars for a decade. And you had, obviously, you had some spinoffs, you had the Clone Wars show that I think started in like 2012 or so but did a lot to bring back that kind of younger audience and get more people who may not be as familiar with it back to to become fans. But Star Wars was essentially dead until the new trilogy started, and then you saw the pendulum swing back again, where you had The Force Awakens come out. It did incredibly well. It got mostly positive reviews, and then the pendulum slowly swung back again with the negative responses to The Last Jedi and to The Rise of Skywalker. And now I think we're even starting to see it swing back again because I've seen 
largely support for the TV shows for Mandalorian and for Boba Fett. Star Wars is an interesting example because it shows how even when a fan base goes through a period of huge discourse and discontent, there's always the chance that something else will come along and, and push it in the other direction. And especially when you have it being run by a company like Disney, it's always going to be a moneymaker and they're always going to see it as that. So they're going to do their best to keep it in the public eye and make sure that whatever is getting put out is at least acceptable to someone even if it's not the hardcore fan base. So you mentioned the pendulum swinging a lot in there. And Star Wars, again, is a good framework for it because it started in the late 70s, early 80s. The prequels in the 2000s and then the sequels in 2015. But with the pendulum swinging, it seems to be getting faster and faster with the range of tolerance that people have for it, where they're, they love it and then they hate it, and then they love it for a little bit and then they hate it for a little bit less. And like it keeps getting shorter. I wonder, Maggie, do you think that that's a model that will continue to like get faster in the future? I know that you mentioned your own interaction with fandoms has been in it for a little bit and then out. Do you think that that's going to be the norm in the future? I think so, yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with we have such an oversaturation of the market there's just so much to watch even just within marvel or star wars i can't watch everything they're producing so if i only see one bad thing even if there's five other good things if i see the one bad thing i'm not gonna like it and i think especially netflix releases short shows riverdale's you know just you know a couple seasons even though it's going on for way too long but just like Bridgerton or Stranger Things or these smaller kind of shows on my block, shows that I like, if they're releasing them a year apart and, you know, the first season isn't necessarily as good as the second season, I'm not going to like it. And I think as we get more and more of these shorter shows or more saturation with movie franchises, yeah, I think the pendulum is going to swing shorter and shorter and shorter, especially now that we have TikTok and other avenues where people are offering their commentary more. We're humans. We all listen to other humans. We're very influenced by other people. So if other people don't like it, it's just going to grow and snowball until the whole world either loves it or hates it. So that's my thoughts on kind of the future of fandoms. Does anybody else, Sean or Reese, have any other final thoughts? What I'll say is that the fact that we're in 2022 and are talking about things like Star Wars, things like Marvel, and groups like BTS, who have now been around for over a decade, I think, shows that fandoms last a long time and don't necessarily decline in relevancy over, over that time. And what I think is the most likely thing to happen in the future is, obviously, new things are going to come out. But at the same time, we're going to see, as, as going back to what Maggie was saying about big corporations sort of pushing this kind of stuff on people, I think what you're going to see is a dramatic increase in the amount of related media surrounding one thing. Like you said, we're seeing that with Marvel, where they have 10 TV shows now that are all canon. Star Wars has seen that with their TV shows. I think that is going to start happening more often, where you're going to have these streaming platforms that are owned by Disney, by Warner Brothers, double down on lower budget and less critical projects that still expand the brand in different directions so they can continue to expand the fan bases to as many people as possible. I agree. The business aspect of it, it makes fandoms necessary for companies, especially in TV and movies, as opposed to 
musical artists, you need the fandoms in order to continue to grow your brand and grow your reach and grow the impact that you can have on people. And Disney is not going to let that slow down for Marvel in the future or Star Wars in the future, regardless of what naturally would happen with it. So I don't see fandoms going away anytime soon. I do see them having a little bit quicker swing where broad sense people are supportive of Star Wars, but in between liking it and liking it, there's going to be more swings back and forth of being on the fence or wanting to hate it. I agree. And I think we'll end it here. But thank you, Reese, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It was very, very fun. And this is our final episode of the semester. So we will not see you next week, but we will see you in the fall. Yes, in the fall. Very excited for next semester. Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced and edited by Sarah Grace Hayes, Maggie Pena, and Sean Scott, with special guest Reese Hollowell and supervising production by our editor-in-chief, Cosette Gunter. Our theme music is by Sam Terbellini. Check us out on Spotify under the name Pop Culture Combos and on SoundCloud under The Miami Student. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next semester.